0: The idea that it could never happen here, that Trumpism could not evolve into this sort of civil religion where violence and mass conflict becomes justified in the name of fighting evil with good, and Trump as an ordained instrument of God's will, and therefore what he says, we, we, we have to follow. I mean, it's the sort of thing that would have sounded totally insane eight years ago. I don't think it's insane anymore.
1: That's journalist Tim Alberta, assessing what a second Trump presidency fueled by Christian nationalism could mean for the country.
0: Things are going to get ugly in the United States of America.
1: I'm Margaret Hoover. This is The Firing Line Podcast. Tim Alberta has written for The Wall Street Journal, The National Review, Politico, and The Atlantic. His new book, The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory, charts the evolution of the evangelical church as a political force.
0: The persecution complex is psychologically at the center, I think, of our problems in the evangelical church. This idea that the forces of secularism and progressivism, that they're coming for us, that they want to defeat
1: God. The son of a preacher, Alberta has witnessed evangelical Christians growing increasingly fearful and increasingly devoted to Donald Trump. In 2016 I declared, I am your voice. Today I add, I am your retribution.
0: If you believe that the barbarians are at the gates, then you think to yourself, maybe we need a barbarian to protect us. That's Donald Trump. That's the evangelical relationship with Donald Trump in a nutshell.
1: Now, with the 2024 election and multiple criminal trials looming, he says Trump's hold on the evangelical base may be stronger than ever. Are there any evangelical leaders who could catalyze the evangelical voting bloc against Trump? Maybe not individually, but together? No. Tim Alberta, welcome to Firing Line.
0: Hi, Margaret. Thank you for having me.
1: You're out with a new book, The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory, which is a deeply personal meditation for you, and also a fastidiously reported account of how the evangelical church has turned towards Christian nationalism, especially in the age of Donald Trump. This was personal. Your father uh, was a minister of an evangelical church, which you grew up worshiping in. You're still a Christian, although you hesitate to call yourself evangelical. How do you characterize your faith now?
0: Well, I think that I'm most comfortable with just the simplest of labels, which is good old-fashioned follower of Jesus. If that was good enough for the apostles, good enough for the disciples, then that's good enough for me. Because at the end of the day, Margaret, I think in some sense, the extra labels, the the additional identities that we try to take on as Christians, they can become burdensome. and, And they can almost get in the way of what that core identity really is, just as a follower of Jesus. So I think I'm most comfortable just describing myself that way.
1: In addition to being a follower of Jesus, you are a nationally recognized, awarded, respected political reporter. Uh, You've written a bestseller about the Trump years called American Carnage. And in 2019, while you were promoting that book, You received word just after a Christian broadcasting interview that your father had had a heart attack and died suddenly. At your father's wake, members from his congregation, family, friends, people who had held you as a baby, came up to you and chastised you. Perhaps that's too light for your negative reporting about Donald Trump. This brought you face-to-face with, exactly how poisoned the evangelical church had become in the age of Donald Trump. You answered their criticisms from the pulpit that your father preached at as you delivered his eulogy. Tell us what happened.
0: Yeah, I was still, I think, in a state of shock because, you know, you have a family tragedy like that. In fact, the last time I'd seen my dad was Uh, at the book launch in in Washington. He and my mom had driven out from Michigan and that was really the last conversation I had with my dad where we were celebrating and it's the highest of the highs and then suddenly I get this phone call and it's the lowest of the lows. And so you're you're floating, you're in this, this fog of melancholy and grief and trying to make sense of it. And so to suddenly have people accosting you, confronting you, wanting to argue about Trump and politics and the deep state when your dad's in a box over here.
1: Your dad who had been their minister.
0: Yeah, for, for more than 25 years. I mean, I, I, this part of it, I just can't emphasize. Like I grew up, this was my family, this church. I mean, this was my community. And to be clear, Margaret, there's a lot of wonderful people there who were doing the appropriate things that day, crying with me, grieving with me, hugging me, telling me they love me. Um, so this was not a majority. But as we've seen in politics, as we've seen in other walks of life, you know, a really vocal, nasty minority can, in some ways, speak for a a, a timid and placid majority. And that's sort of what was happening here. And 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 frankly, it was so shocking and so surreal that um, I didn't quite know how to respond at first. And it was really not until the next day at the funeral when yeah, in my eulogy, I just, I decided to let them have it a little bit because I, it was just, the sense I had was um, if they are willing to treat me this way, you know, their pastor's son, somebody they've known since I was four or five years old, and they know what I believe, they know who I am as a, as a human being, they're, if they're willing to treat me that, that way, then how are they treating their neighbor? How are they treating the unbeliever in the community? How are they treating their enemy, Mm -hmm. real or perceived? And that, to me, was kind of a wake-up call.
1: What was their specific criticism of you?
0: I think there's this idea that looms large in the evangelical imagination that this country is not just a country informed by Judeo-Christian ethics, Judeo-Christian values, but that it is a Christian nation. And... That that Christian nation is in decline, that it's in danger, and that Donald Trump has sort of stepped in as this protector of Christian America. And that if you're criticizing Donald Trump, then you're criticizing America, Christian America. That, that, that In other words, that this is all very zero-sum. And so you're either on the right side or on the wrong side. In fact, that's what one person said to me at the viewing. Like, are you still on the right side? The viewing of your father. Yeah, the viewing. Yeah, the, you know, the visitation of my, for my father. And, and, and what a strange thing to say to somebody in any setting who's a fellow believer, but particularly in that setting, in that moment as I'm mourning, all because I dared to take Donald Trump's name in vain. What, what are we doing here?
1: When you responded from the pulpit, your response was about Rush Limbaugh?
0: Yeah, so Rush Limbaugh had, because my book had just come out, I was sort of in the crosshairs of right-wing media at the time, and Rush Limbaugh had just recently, like a few days I think before the funeral, had been ripping me on his show, and so that for many people was the jumping off point. I didn't realize that my dad's congregation was so addicted to AM talk radio, but apparently they were, and so that was a lot of the folks coming up to me and saying, hey, like, you know, Rush." rip it on you, man, like, what's up? Like, what you know, and that was to me, I think it was like, it was symptomatic of the illness here because from my view, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are someone who believes in just the most fundamental teachings of Christ about loving your neighbor about loving your enemy and praying for those who persecute you, about as far as it depends on you, live in peace with everyone, then it's hard to simultaneously hold to those ideals and to simultaneously be listening to Rush Limbaugh for three hours every day, right, with with sort of an unceasing stream of venom and ugliness and hostility, antagonism, hatred. Reconciling those two things is very hard, but I think for a lot of Christians, far too many Christians at least, they've made peace with reconciling those two things, and that's at the heart of the problem.
1: You say that centuries from now, people will pinpoint COVID-19 as one of the main drivers of change in the evangelical movement. Explain why. So
0: I think it's very difficult for folks who are on the outside of this movement looking in, who weren't raised in it as I was, who don't have deep roots in it, to fully appreciate the extent to which evangelicals have been taught and promised for generations now, that one day in this country there will be a cosmic clash between the forces of good and evil, that the good, God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians will square off once and for all with those pagans, those secular progressives, in government and in culture who, they, they wanna punish us, they wanna persecute us, they wanna eradicate the Almighty from public life, right? They, they want to rid this country of its Judeo-Christian heritage, and they're gonna come for us. You just wait, and you better be prepared for that day. Right, Margaret? I mean, that has been the message. I've been marinating in that since I was a toddler. So when COVID-19 arrives, and some of these governors around the country, they issue shutdown orders implicating houses of worship, that was it. That was the fulfillment of prophecy for a lot of these people. They, they looked around and they said, well, here it is. You know, they, they told us this day would come and now it's come. And the question became, what are you gonna do about it, right? Are you going to hold your ground for God? Are you going to show that you were made for a time such as this and show the, the, put on the full armor of God and show that you are courageous and strong and fighting back against the forces of evil in this culture who wanna persecute Christianity? Or are you gonna be a coward? Are you going to be a collaborator with the regime? Are you going to be a Marxist? Are you gonna just fold and be spineless in in this moment of testing? And of course, that just ridiculously simplistic outlook is what in many ways began to shape the debate. There was this fault line driven through churches everywhere where a pastor could be perfectly conservative, theologically, politically, and otherwise, on every issue imaginable. And yet, in that moment, out of concern for their congregation, for vulnerable people, they said, yeah, we'll close for some period of time. We'll do our worship on Sunday mornings online, and we'll pray for one another, and we'll get through this, right? The pastors who made that decision, they became apostates in their congregations, and we are still very much living with the trauma of that today. And I suspect we'll be living with it for a long time because it sparked this massive realignment where congregations that had been together for decades fell apart overnight.
1: Yeah. As part of your reporting, you returned to your home church, um, your dad's church, Cornerstone Evangelical Presbyterian Church, and you met with your father's successor and interviewed him about dealing with the exodus that he sustained in his church during the COVID-19 pandemic. And and also, frankly, due to the fact that he was unwilling to preach right-wing political policies from the pulpit. Um, You asked him, what is wrong with evangelicals in America? And his response was, America. Too many of them worship America. Yeah. Explain. Hmm.
0: I think at its core as as he would argue and as I've come to be convinced myself we are dealing with an idolatry problem inside of the church. Margaret and, and to be really clear this is nothing new. You know, people of course want to ask when did this start? Like how how far back do we trace the problem? And you know, as my friend Russell Moore might say, well, go back to the garden of eden, right? That's probably where our problems start in the church. In America, it's unique, this problem, I think, because this nation has this amazing Genesis story, right? Being born out of revolution, defying the odds, and a nation that has been extraordinarily effective in spreading the gospel around the world and and doing missionary work around the world. And and those things are obviously wonderful and, and to be commended. And I've spent time working in the missions field myself. I mean, I'm deeply appreciative of of Mm -hmm. America's role uh, in the world in that sense. However, I think once you become convinced that this nation is somehow in covenant with God, you start to think that a defeat for America is a defeat for God. That you start to think that fighting for America is the same as fighting for God. As though salvation itself hangs in the balance with every election. Mm -hmm. And that's just, it's completely abiblical. But I would also say, I mean, we are warned throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, to not be like the nations. In other words, Jesus says throughout the New Testament that you belong to a kingdom, but that kingdom is not in this world, right? It's the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom of God. And if you are a citizen of that kingdom, then you cannot be preoccupied with the idols and the gods of this world and I think in the American church it's particularly problematic because we see the blessings in this country we've come to think of those blessings as almost entitlements and we are infected with a with a deep fear when we see anything threatening that way of life that white Christian America that idealized Christian America, that, that, that we've become so accustomed to, anything threatening it is not just a threat to, to America, it's a threat to God. And we respond with this panic.
1: You trace this shift in the politics of the evangelical movement from the 1970s when you say, quote, preachers who had once prescribed total detachment from worldly affairs were now, in this current day, trafficking in Jeremiah's of civilizational collapse winning huge audiences of older conservative Christians who feared the American apocalypse was nigh. Where, Tim, in this continuum since the 1970s, from the time the white evangelical Protestants sort of joined forces with the Reagan revolution to now, what caused this shift?
0: Well, a couple of things. I think this idea that America is under attack Christian America is under attack it's nothing new and in many ways when you look back to the 1970s Jerry Falwell senior and others they built an entire movement around this idea that the apocalypse was approaching and that this idyllic version of America that they held dear was slipping away and that something had to be done that we had to fight to hold on to it right um, I think Perhaps the biggest difference between then and now, Margaret, is that when you talk to people who were involved with those efforts at the time, they'll tell you that they didn't really believe it. In other words, it was a mechanism. They were able to effectively exploit the fears and the cultural insecurities of a lot of people back then. But if you look at the country at that time, it was 90% white, it was 90% Christian, everybody went to church. I mean, sure, some court rulings had gone against them, but like th- this idea that Christian America was you know, being kneecapped by secularists, it just didn't pass the smell test. But now, for a lot of these people, they're still being exploitative, they're still being manipulative, but there is, I think, a real fear now. I think, I think there's a genuine sense for a lot of these people that when you think about the culture wars lost, when you think about the demographic changes in the country, when you think about all of the statistics about church attendance plummeting and Americans believing in God and self-identifying as Christians at rates that are so dramatically low relative to, to the historical trend lines, that we are at the abyss here. And that if something isn't done quickly and dramatically, to, to pull us back from that abyss, then we will never recover the nation that we once were. I mean, I think that fear is real. And, it, and, and, and it's contagious. You see that fear everywhere you go. When you have these conversations with evangelical Christians, that fear is pervasive. I would say in many ways that it's that fear that binds so many of them together and that causes many of them to behave in ways that they otherwise wouldn't, that that, that they would never be able to find justification for were it not for this fear.
1: Why did fear become a driver in the evangelical movement?
0: Let me give you a really uncomfortable answer, because too many of these people are spending more time watching Fox News than they are reading the New Testament.
1: So So fear translated to the pulpit because of cable news?
0: In a lot of ways. I think so. I mean, look, if you, and don't take my word for it, by the way. I mean, so a big part of this project for me was I spent four years traveling around the country, meeting with hundreds of pastors and having these conversations. And they will all tell you some variation of the same thing, that their concern is that they'll get their congregation for 45 minutes on a Sunday morning or an hour, if they're lucky, and they'll preach to them the teachings of Jesus. And one of the most the most frequently cited command in all of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, is fear not, right? Mm-hmm. Christians are taught time and time and time again that fear is not only unhealthy, but that it's abiblical, that fear is the antithesis of faith. You know, in the story where Peter sees Jesus walking on the water and he calls to him, Lord, may I come out to you? Jesus, come. Peter starts walking on the water. And he's doing it, and everybody's amazed. And Peter's amazed because he has this great faith. And then suddenly he looks around and sees the winds swirling and the storm, and he becomes very afraid, and he starts to drown. And Jesus grabs him by the arm, pulls him up, and says, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? The reason I think that's so important here is that faith and fear need to be considered spiritually as like arch enemies, right? Mm -hmm. And so the message that you get from your preacher on a Sunday morning, the message that you get from reading your Gospels, the message that you get from listening to a great Bible podcast and, and thinking about uh, you know, analyzing a certain chapter and, and, and gaining your own biblical insights, that message of faith is completely contradictory to the message of fear that you're getting from watching Fox News every night from listening to talk radio every day from just living inside of your social media feed all of that is built on keeping you afraid and really making you anxious and angry and spiteful and these things don't coexist i mean it's 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 in many ways it's it's oil and water you have to choose one or the other
1: so you're saying that the message of the pulpit was replaced by the political messaging from cable news.
0: In many ways it was. I mean, in many ways it was. And 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 here's the problem. I'm not... Specifically
1: you know... Fox News.
0: <laughs> well, listen, and we're talking about the conservative evangelical church here, right? So you don't have a lot of MSNBC viewers. Well,
1: I, I just, I just yeah. wanted to spare. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. should not love them altogether.
0: No, no. And I think it's difficult because... Listen, some people will hear me say that, no doubt, and and they'll think, well, wait a second. Can I be a Christian but also be an engaged citizen? Of course you can, right? This is all about proportionality and about balancing where your priorities are and and what your information inputs are. And it's very difficult to be a faithful follower of Jesus. If 5% of your diet is biblical and 95% of it is Secular. It's, yeah. it's just, it's very hard.
1: So it's, it's the fear that allowed evangelicals to justify the leadership of somebody like Donald Trump, which seems so antithetical to outsiders' understanding of evangelicals. Yeah.
0: Well, look, I mean, if, if, if you believe that the barbarians are at the gates, then you think to yourself, maybe we need a barbarian to protect us. That's, that's Donald Trump that's the evangelical relationship with Donald Trump in a nutshell. I mean, for a lot of these people, and I just can't emphasize it enough, I mean, these themes that we're discussing here of fear and grievance and persecution, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Not just that the country doesn't look the same as it used to, but that the country is coming for us. You know, when Donald Trump gets out on the stump and says, I'm your retribution, they hear that very differently than just the average. How do they hear it? Well, I mean, look, you might think to yourself, well, how could all the, you know the criminal indictments and you know found liable for sexual abuse, all these things, how how can they support him with, with those things hanging over his head? And it's important, I think, to recognize they're not supporting him in spite of those things. They're supporting him because of those things. When he says that he's going to be your retribution, these are people who feel aggrieved and wronged by the culture, by the government. That, you know, that, that, that the education system has kicked God out of the schools, mm-hmm. that the sexual ethics of the culture have run completely counter to what the country's Judeo-Christian heritage was. You know, pornography, drug usage, civilizational decline. That's what we're dealing with here.
1: And, and if, opioid and, epidemic.
0: Yeah, and, and, and here's the thing. I, I would just be remiss if I That's didn't fine. say this. I mean, if you understand Christian history if you understand the the origins of the church and how it grew, the church has always been at its best and at its most powerful and influential in terms of spreading the witness of Jesus Christ in the most hostile places. I mean, the early church is planted in the first century Roman Empire under brutal occupation from these brutish Pagan Romans who were feeding Christians to the lions and brutalizing them and and, and 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 Oppressing them in the worst ways possible. And how did the early church respond? They prayed for these people They sang hymns while they were being martyred. They they wrote letters Talking about how they were praying for the very people who were torturing them, right? So there's a there's a very particular Christian response To this idea that the culture is coming for us and it is not to find a mercenary-type figure who's willing to throw out the rule book and fight fire with fire. It's yeah. just, it doesn't That's add not, up.
1: Yeah, yeah. You also write about the crusaders who stood up to the rightward shift in the church, Russell Moore, David French, Rachel Denhollander. Tell me about the counteroffenses by spiritual leaders like Russell Moore and how they've been received.
0: Well, it's interesting. Russell
1: Moore, who was, of course, the the head of the Southern Baptist Convention Mm -hmm. and a, a very prominent and respected Southern Baptist leader.
0: It's really interesting because these folks who you named, they are simultaneously in the majority. I truly believe that, that that that's still
1: a silent majority,
0: a, a very silent majority a, and a cowed majority, I would say, a majority that is paralyzed by this moment. In many ways, this does run parallel with the implosion of the Republican Party in recent years. Right. Um, Donald Trump was never a majority candidate in 2016. He was barely even a plurality candidate. Right. This was this was a pretty small sect that decided that they were going to out-organize and out-vocalize the rest. And and that's how a fringe ultimately defeats the mainstream. And I think something very similar is happening in the church where you do have, I think, a sizable majority of white evangelicals, regardless of who they voted for in the last election, regardless of their views on certain issues, they, they don't want this sort of radicalism in their churches. But they are not necessarily willing to go to war over it. They, they are they, they're, they're not just willing not, to speak up. They're not willing to speak up. They're not willing to, I mean, listen, this, is, this has gotten ugly in a lot of congregations. I mean, I document it in detail in the book. This is not a pleasant thing for these folks. And so it's an interesting situation for some of these reformers, some of these folks who are trying to launch a counteroffensive to reclaim our faith tradition from the radical extreme that has tried to hijack it. They are in a majority and yet they're outgunned, they're outmanned because a lot of the folks in this sort of ascendant far-right Christian nationalist movement, they are organized and they are well-financed and they're well-connected and the biggest advantage they have, Margaret, if I can just be really blunt about it, they don't play by the rules. Yeah. In other words, it, you know, if you're Russell Moore, or if you're David French, if you're an evangelical Christian who's trying to, in good faith, uh, litigate these issues inside the church, you are bound and constrained by the teachings of Christ. And and you have a, a very clear, unambiguous set of rules to follow as to how you are to engage. Um, those rules of engagement are not observed by, by by a lot of these other folks. They're not practiced by a lot of these other folks. And that gives them just an inherent advantage because um, they're able to sort of lie, cheat, and steal and get what they want in the process. And we're, we're seeing that now. We're, we're seeing not just in individual congregations, as I document in the book, but at an institutional level, there is absolutely a real and dangerous threat from what was once a fringe movement that we didn't necessarily need to take seriously, I don't know that we should call them or consider them the fringe anymore.
1: Even after he was indicted numerous times, Donald Trump has maintained his hold on the evangelical vote. Talk about the persecution complex. Because you've written the greater Trump's criminal difficulties are, the greater his support is among the evangelical Christians. What is the persecution complex?
0: Well, it's funny, Margaret. If you think back to the 2022 midterms, when Republicans badly underperformed and Donald Trump responded by throwing evangelicals under the bus, that was the first time his support really started to dip and there was an open question for a minute there of, oh wow, so are evangelicals abandoning Donald Trump now? And then Alvin Bragg delivered that first indictment in New York and the support went right back up and it's been climbing ever since. The persecution complex is, it's, it's just psychologically, at the center, I think, of our problems in the evangelical church, which is to say that this idea that we're on borrowed time in America, that that uh, the forces of secularism and progressivism, that they're coming for us and that they don't want us here, that they want to defeat God, and by defeating God they have to first defeat America because we are sort of God's covenant nation, God's shining light, the, you know, the city on the hill, that we are the country that does more to spread the gospel than all the other countries in the world combined. So to defeat God, you have to defeat America. And to defeat America, you have to defeat us first. And so you then start to process every political defeat, every cultural defeat, every unkind thing said about you through this lens of, well, we're being persecuted. The problem with that is, even if it's true that that, 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 that there are that you have enemies in the culture who don't like Christianity, fine. The problem is, when you sign up to follow Jesus, he makes a promise to you, not a prediction, a promise to you that you will be persecuted. And you're also going to be judged based on how you respond to that persecution. You know, Peter writes in his epistles about how being persecuted and suffering is something we should aspire to, that it brings us closer to Jesus, and that The people persecuting us, we have a responsibility to love them, to witness to them, to show them the example of Jesus with the way that we treat them in response to them, no matter how terrible they may be to us. So this idea that being persecuted creates a permission structure for us to throw out the Sermon on the Mount, throw out the Beatitudes, throw out the teachings of Jesus, and just enlist Donald Trump to do our dirty work for us so that we can own the libs and win the culture war and carry the next election. It's nonsense. It's just completely abiblical, and anyone who subscribes to that theory is not spending enough time in the New Testament.
1: Sarah Jones of New York Magazine, who, like you, grew up uh, in an evangelical church but left more than a decade ago, in her review of your book rejected the premise that the church can ultimately be saved, and she frankly argues there's nothing worth salvaging. How do you respond? Well...
0: It's interesting. If you look historically, what we often see is this interesting relationship, kind of an inverse relationship, between the amount of social, cultural, political power that Christians have in a society at a given time and how healthy the Christian church is in that society at a given time. In other words, when Christians are dominating a society and when they're holding the commanding heights of all these institutions, then the Christian church tends to Suffer. Uh, it tends to um, it tends to be viewed unfavorably by those outside of the church. However, when the opposite is true, when Christians are sort of at the margins, and when they're not in positions of power, and when they're not trying to impose themselves on the society around them, the Christian church and the Christian witness tends to really flourish. So, I think what I would say to that critique is just that we have not seen the best of the church in this country because the church in this country, at least for the last 50 years, has just been so consumed with the pursuit of political power. power. And that pursuit of power has corrupted the church in many ways. And we don't know what a healthy, vibrant church looks like because we haven't tried it. In a lot of ways, we just haven't we, we we see it in isolation. We we see you know examples of it. But in at, at the Capital C church, we haven't seen it. And and, and I guess what I would say to, to anyone who who follows the teachings of Jesus, this idea that the last shall be first, that we should humble ourselves, that we should seek first the kingdom of heaven, and then all of these other things will be added unto you. We as Christians, I think, have to appreciate. That 50 years ago, unbelievers in this country, they liked the church. Even if they didn't believe in the God that we believe in, they respected the institution of the church. They thought that socially, that we were good for society. And now it's the exact opposite. They hate us. And, and that review speaks to that. And I think we have the responsibility now to try to demonstrate what real Christianity looks like in a culture that is desperately in need of Christ.
1: The transformation of the evangelical community really is marked by the emergence of the moral majority. And the founder of the moral majority, Jerry Falwell, appeared on firing line with William F. Buckley Jr. in 1981. He spoke about the need to hold political leaders to a higher standard. How do you define that sin which A.O. Ipso Disqualifies you from public office? Well, I feel uh, and one, the fact that everybody sins. I feel when one aspires to a place of public leadership, a congressman, mm-hmm. a president, a governor, I think uh, like a priest or a pastor or a rabbi, uh, he is aspiring to lead the people and people are going to emulate his lifestyle or her lifestyle. And I think that we have an obligation to go a step beyond uh, the uh, average person because in leadership, More is demanded of us. In leadership, more is demanded of us. How do you reflect on that clip now?
0: Well, on the one hand, he's right. I mean, theologically, what he's giving voice to there is the New Testament model of leadership that, yes, we are to hold fellow believers, those inside the church, we are to hold them to the highest standard. You know, they are to be subject to tremendous Scrutiny and accountability, right?
1: And yet you write extensively about Jerry Falwell, Jerry Falwell Jr., Liberty University, his own failings. Well, he he preached this message, he didn't live up to his own standard.
0: That's the irony. The, I, the irony is that if you look at the unraveling of organized Christianity in this country, if you try to make sense of how the secular world 50 years ago had incredibly positive views of the church and now the secular world can't stand the church, right? There's this Australian theologian at Wheaton College named John Dixon who talks about this. And he says, all the social science we have says that the reason that people used to resent Christians was because they were too pious, they were too self-righteous. And now the reason that people don't like Christians is because we're actively wicked, right? In other words, that's been the paradigm shift. And so if you think about Jerry Falwell Sr. in that clip, he's speaking to a biblical doctrine that is, that is true and that is right. The irony is that had he lived by that doctrine, had his movement lived by that doctrine, had they truly been committed to upholding the biblical truths behind what he just said there, then we wouldn't be in this mess that we're in today. And it's tragic.
1: Prominent evangelical leaders Russell Moore even in Iowa, Bob Vanderplans um, stood up to Donald Trump uh, in 2016, but their perspective didn't make a dent in evangelical voters' views of Donald Trump. Uh, are there any voices, and put your political hat on, your political reporting hat on? Um, is there are there any evangelical leaders who could catalyze the evangelical voting bloc against Trump? Maybe not individually, but together? No. Nothing. Explain why.
0: Because it's the evangelical leaders who created this monster in the first place.
1: I mean, let me... This monster being Donald Trump.
0: Yeah. You know, let me, let me jump back in the time machine with you, go to the summer of 2016. It's easy to forget now, but when Donald Trump ran for president in 2016, evangelical Christians were his softest group of supporters. There was a lot of suspicion of him, a lot of skepticism. He really had to work hard to earn their votes. That's why he put Mike Pence on the ticket. That's why he released the list of Supreme Court nominees and promised to pick pro-life Supreme Court justices. All of that was meant to assuage the concerns of those voters. But take it a step further, Margaret. In the summer of 2016, as he's courting these people, Donald Trump gathers about 500 prominent evangelical leaders in New York City at a Marriott, and they have this day-long conference, and Franklin Graham, Jerry Falwell Jr., Mike Huckabee, a number of these prominent, high-profile evangelical leaders, they take turns getting up on stage and vouching for Trump, vouching for his character. In other words, not just saying, oh, you know, listen, this is a binary choice, lesser of two evils, you know, we we need to hold our nose and vote for the pro-life candidate. No, 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 this was God uses flawed people throughout the Bible to advance his purposes. How is this guy any different than King David? Or King Solomon, right? Or Moses even. I mean, I was there that day and I heard comparisons to Moses. That's how far some of these folks were willing to go. They were willing to stretch their credibility as spiritual leaders and lay it all on the line for Donald Trump and convince the masses that this was someone who was not only palatable, but that in some ways, perhaps, he was a divine instrument. of of God's plan for the ages, God's plan for this country, this blessed, ordained country in covenant with God, do you really think that he would allow Donald Trump to be in this position if it wasn't his plan, right? Well, you fast forward eight years, some of those same people privately are horrified of Donald Trump. They know how dangerous he is, but they've locked themselves into this position now where even if they came out today, all of them, locking arms and and denouncing him and saying, "Never mind, we were wrong. Please forgive us for what we said," the people wouldn't listen because they've already they've already made their judgments on him.
1: In fact, you say that evangelicals largely see Trump as God's instrument on earth. What does that mean?
0: It means that you believe that a God who is all powerful is able to. Play chess when you when everybody else is just looking at a checkerboard. Which is true, to be clear, I I believe that too. But I also believe
1: you don't happen to believe that Trump is God's instrument on earth.
0: No, I don't. I well, let's be clear. I think, uh, you know, I had somebody say to me not long ago. They said um, this was a pastor, and this pastor said, you know, I was having a tough conversation with some members of my church who were really upset with me because they know that I am not real fond of Donald Trump and his rhetoric and his behavior. And they were saying, don't you think that, you know, he's God's instrument? Don't you think that he was put here for a time such as this and that God is using him as a vessel? And the pastor responded and said, and I replied to them, isn't it possible, just possible, that God put Donald Trump in this position to test us as believers and to see how we might respond? And if there's even a remote possibility that that's true, Margaret, that that is what Donald Trump is doing right now, that he is testing us as believers, I think that's a pretty scary thought for a lot of Christians. Are we passing that test?
1: You've said the church is not a victim of America's civic strife, but instead it is one of its principal catalysts. I think many outsiders think perhaps this is Fox News, perhaps this is social media, perhaps this is things from the outside have poisoned the church. But what you say is that this is contributing to the polarization and the fragmentation of our civic engagement in our life. The church is poisoning the well for the rest of us. You really believe that?
0: Yeah, I do. I, the Capital C Church. So to be clear, there are lots of You're not really, talking about the
1: Catholics or the Episcopalians? And I'm not even talking about you know
0: every individual congregation, because I'm a part of a really healthy, strong congregation. And I've visited with lots of healthy, strong congregations and lots of pastors who are just um, doing the Lord's work in, in, in trying to navigate these incredibly difficult times. But I think at an institutional level, the church has become a, a front in the culture wars. The church is a place that has been weaponized by by, by far too many people to help advance a political agenda, a cultural agenda, to, to, to sort of... Um, muster the outrage and the indignation needed to win a debate or to put an enemy in their place. You know, when we read about the purpose of the church in Scripture, I mean, Jesus said that, you know, He came not to to save the righteous, but to save sinners. He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I mean, the church is meant to be a hospital for sick people. Mm Right, and we're all, and that's all of us, by the way. Uh, you know, uh, Christians believe, you know, at least many of us believe doctrinally in this idea of total depravity—that we are broken fundamentally without the saving grace of Jesus Christ and his his sacrifice on the cross—and that is meant to be the organizing principle of the church. And yet that has been in many cases sort of pushed to the side, maybe not displaced altogether, but kind of pushed to the side, right? And we have instead started to view the church as this stronghold, this, this place where, from which uh, if we gather with like-minded people with a common shared identity, that we can use the church to advance other purposes, that we can use the church to achieve other means. and even if those other means are are well-intended, it's still wrong, because that is not the purpose of the church.
1: After the midterm elections, Trump cast blame on Republican losses and the lack of a Republican red wave into Congress on the pro-life movement rather than on himself and, and the strategy around Republicans and how they handled the issue of abortion. And you write in your book and and broadly that in the aftermath of that movement, many evangelicals were angry at Trump and eager to have somebody else perhaps challenge him in the primaries and somebody else emerge. Yet Mike Pence, Vice President Mike Pence, an evangelical himself, Senator Tim Scott, an evangelical himself, um, none were able even Ron DeSantis, who had probably the most chance of being able to um, capture the enthusiasm of Trump supporters. None of them have earned the support of evangelicals. Why?
0: I think for 50 years, abortion was used as the chief mobilizer for millions and millions of evangelical Christians. And let me be clear, Margaret. I mean, I have friends, family members, people who I love and respect greatly who are deeply committed to the pro-life cause. And they are sincere when they say that they are single-issue voters. It's the most important thing for them in in voting for a president. I think that there are a couple of implications uh, there. One is that we could see some significant fall-off in this coming election. We could see a lot of those voters who have been holding their nose voting for Republicans for years in presidential elections because of the stakes of abortion and the Supreme Court hanging in the balance, they could decide to stay home and instead of voting for Donald Trump, which would mathematically make things very difficult for him. But more to the point of the question you're asking...
1: But he said that he overturned Roe v. Wade.
0: Well, and in overturning Roe v. Wade, it's not a federal issue anymore. Now it's done. It's thrown back to the states. Okay. Be careful what you wish for, right? But I think abortion, it's, it's a bit of a cautionary tale because evangelicals, they got what they wanted with Roe v. Wade falling, and the statistics are now out, and the data shows that actually the overall number of abortions has gone up in the country since Roe v. Wade fell. Now, there are political implications of this, but also spiritual implications. The political implications is that in many ways, abortion is no longer this great galvanizing issue for Republican primary voters in the way that it once was. In other words, if you're Mike Pence, if you're Tim Scott, if you're Ron DeSantis, and you're campaigning on the issue of abortion at a presidential level, a lot of voters now might tune you out and say, well, okay, yeah, but you're not going to sign a law on that. It's not going to be debated in Congress. This is now at the state. So what else do you got? Right? So- A
1: if federal I, ban on abortion everywhere.
0: Yeah. I mean, right. And and that's, you know, it's it's- in pretty much inconceivable that there's going to be any sort of a federal ban passed in, in, in the coming years. So I think for a lot of these Republican voters, a lot of these evangelical primary voters now, they push abortion to the side and say, okay, well, what is our priority? And I think for many of them, the priority is what we've been discussing, which is who's going to protect Christianity in America? Mm. Who is willing to stand up and fight against our enemies in the culture? You know the education curriculum, the transgender issue. Uh, you know th- th- all of these things that uh, critical race theory, this idea that there's a there's a cabal out there, and that that cabal, the deep state, that they're all working together, sort of. You know, organized and and systematically plotting to take down Christianity in America. If that's your belief, then you are looking for the person who can fight back against it. And Donald Trump checks that box in ways that Ron DeSantis, Mike Pence, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, these people could never dream of because none of them are willing to say the things that Donald Trump is willing to say. I mean, just the other day, Donald Trump's out there campaigning talking about how he's not going, maybe he's not going to let non-Christians into the country anymore. Maybe he's going to impose a litmus test that you have to be a Christian if you're going to migrate to this country. He said, Trump did, if you don't like our religion, then maybe you get out. You don't need to be here, right? And this is the sort of thing that we've become desensitized. We've become numb to the things that Donald Trump says and does. But if you're wondering, well, if, if theocracy comes to America, if the wall between church and state gets demolished, then how does it start? Well, it probably starts like this. It probably starts with a strong man leader taking all of the authoritarian impulses over here, merging it with all of the relig- religious zealotry over here, combining the two, and having a movement of people behind him who believe that he's an instrument of the Almighty to accomplish God's will on earth no matter how flawed he is?
1: Um, Iowa is upon us. Desantis's strategy to win Iowa um, rests on pulling off a victory where evangelicals make up a majority of Republican caucus goers. And a recent Iowa-Des Moines Register poll has evangelicals in Iowa pulling at 51% for Donald Trump. The biggest lead of any Republican candidate this close to the caucuses. You've covered presidential races now for many years. You've covered Donald Trump for eight years. How do you see Iowa going?
0: I believe in miracles. (laughs) But, and I think it's gonna take one for any of these other Republicans to defeat Donald Trump in Iowa, for any of these other Republicans to defeat Donald Trump in New Hampshire, ultimately for any of these other Republicans to prevent Donald Trump from winning the nomination. It's just not, from where I sit today, it's just quite improbable. Because of Donald Trump's chokehold on that evangelical vote. These, these, are, these are folks who, you know, years ago when Donald Trump said that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and get away with it, Little did we know that not only would he be right, but that he would be right specifically as it pertains to his relationship with these evangelical voters.
1: In addition to documenting the last 50 years of the evangelical movement, um, you've also written widely influential pieces about leading political figures and media figures uh, in the last decade. An influential piece that you published after January 6th was about Nikki Haley. Uh, You wrote that she told you, quote, we shouldn't have followed him, meaning Donald Trump, we shouldn't have listened to him, and we can't ever let that happen again. Today, Nikki Haley is running against Donald Trump, but she is loathe to criticize him explicitly. And you say that Haley has the ability to shape shift and morph. Which Nikki Haley have you observed on the campaign trail?
0: There are a number of different Nikki Haley's. Uh, the one that I've seen on the campaign trail, I think, is the one who's trying to be everything to just about everyone. Uh, in other words, she's trying to be a, kind of a, a lowest common denominator candidate who doesn't want to offend the uh, Trump supporters around the country, so she's not gonna say what she really thinks about Trump. And, and we know what she really thinks about Trump because you just read part of what she had said to me. She doesn't want to uh, antagonize Republican moderates by embracing a uh, stricter anti-abortion stance like Ron DeSantis has done, because many of the folks she's appealing to in the donor class of the Republican Party don't want to see that. Um, she's trying, I think, to sort of speak with some populist flair and and trying to sort of embrace as best she can some of the Trump age, um, uh, you know, leaning into, leaning into this sort of anti-intellectual, anti-elite shtick that, yeah. that Trump is so good at, but it doesn't necessarily fit. So it's, it's, it's a strange campaign to watch in many ways because her natural political abilities are such that she's able to draw big crowds and give good speeches and perform really well in these debates just by virtue of what a good political athlete she is. But I think the question for her heading into this campaign is the same question we have coming out of the campaign, potentially, if she doesn't win, which is, if you're going to run, wouldn't you rather just run, win or lose, let the chips fall where they may, being the most authentic version of yourself? And I think, at some level, the problem for Nikki Haley is that the Republican Party, as it's constituted today, is not a party that is a great match for the authentic version of Nikki Haley, someone who would otherwise really like to talk about her identity as the daughter of immigrants who struggled with racism in South Carolina, whose most profound political act, one of great courage, was taking down the Confederate flag after that heinous white supremacist rampage in Charleston when she was governor. She took down the Confederate flag and it was one of the bravest things that we've seen in our politics in a very long time she won't talk about that because it's just, it's, it's, not, it's not the sort of message that's conducive to winning in today's Republican Party. So it's, it's honestly like watching a tragedy play out in slow motion, her campaign.
1: You referenced Donald Trump's rhetoric about retribution. His campaign rhetoric has gotten darker and more authoritarian. Um, he's recently joked that he would behave like a dictator on day one. You've said that many are still underestimating what a second Trump term could mean. How seriously should people take Donald Trump's promises?
0: Here's the thing. If it was just Donald Trump spouting off, you know, saying crazy stuff to get a response, then maybe we wouldn't be so worried. What concerns me just as a citizen, as someone who's invested in the idea of a pluralistic society and a liberal democracy and kind of holding this thing together, is that Donald Trump in his second term would be surrounded by a lot of folks who truly view politics as a proxy for good and evil. These are not people who are accommodated to just partisan differences, and let's try to win where we can win and find compromise where we can compromise and kind of move an agenda forward. There's kind of an apocalyptic zero-sum zeal that infects a lot of these folks who are close to Trump now and who would be surrounding him in a second term. So when he says, for instance, that he's thinking about banning anyone who's not a Christian from entering the country, I don't think that's just empty rhetoric. I think it's something real, and I think it's something that is being discussed at the highest levels of the Trump operation. I also think that we in the United States, if I can say this with due humility, we think that our very special and unique past assures us of a very special and unique future. And if you look throughout world history, that just doesn't work that way. The fact of the matter is, anytime time the world over when we look through the history books and we see this, this fusing of authoritarianism and, and religious fanaticism, and, and more specifically I would say religious justification for violence, for conflict, when you see the merging of those two things, that's when you see history's greatest crimes. The, the, the great crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing, genocide, Holocaust. This is a real threat. By the way, we see it playing out in Ukraine right now with Donald Trump's buddy, Vladimir Putin, who, with the Russian Orthodox Church in his pocket, cooked up this religious justification for the invasion of Ukraine. Why? Because our cultural values are under attack. That's, that's what they said. That's what they said to the citizens in Russia. Our cultural values are under attack from these evil, godless, secularists and we need to defeat them because they are evil and we are good. And this campaign in Ukraine was about fighting Satan himself. I mean, that's what came out of the Russian Orthodox Church. And I just I mentioned that, Margaret, just to say that like this is not taking place in a vacuum. I mean this, this is real. this is, this is happening overseas today, and the idea that it could never happen here, that, that Trumpism could not evolve into this sort of civil religion where violence and mass conflict becomes justified in the name of fighting evil with good, and Trump as a as an ordained instrument of God's will, and therefore what he says we we, we have to follow. I mean, it's the sort of thing that would have sounded totally insane eight years ago. I don't think it's insane anymore.
1: With that, as you look forward to the eminent primaries and caucuses, it sounds like you're, you're preparing yourself for the probability that Trump will reclaim the Republican nomination. If that's the case, where does that leave the Republican Party and where does that leave the evangelicals and the church?
0: Well, I hope to be able to answer that question in two parts. My hope is that it leaves the Republican Party in a very different place than it leaves Evangelicals because I think obviously the Republican Party is Trump's party and will be Trump's party all the more so if he's elected to another term. Where I hope it leaves Evangelicals is wandering into a place of political homelessness, perhaps for the first time in a long time. And what I mean by that is just this idea that our faith identity, that our identity as followers of Jesus is in any way, shape, or form attached to or even interchangeable with our identity as partisan Republicans is so profoundly wrong and, and, and does such a disservice to the gospel of Jesus Christ that I hope that if Trump does win, or if Trump loses, either way, that there's an awakening here in the evangelical world that we do not put our faith in mortal men. We do not put our faith in in princes, in kings. We are not citizens of a kingdom here on Earth that ultimately, if you follow Jesus, and not everyone does, I understand that, but if you claim to follow Jesus, if that is your identity, then it doesn't matter who wins the next election. You can care about this country, you can be engaged civically, you can vote, you can be engaged politically, all those things are fine, but ultimately those things cannot, they cannot supplant your true identity in Christ. And my hope is that no matter how bleak things may get in this country, and as you can probably tell, I have every expectation that they'll get bleaker, that things are going to get ugly in the United States of America. And that troubles me because I'm a dad, I've got kids, I I love this country, I wanna see it flourish, but I also have my true identity elsewhere. And as my dad used to say from the pulpit, whenever his people would get a little too worked up about all these things, my dad would always say, God does not bite his fingernails. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you really shouldn't be biting your fingernails either.
1: Tim Alberta, thank you for joining me. It's
0: my pleasure. Thanks for having me.